Welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Amar, and Pradeep Dasigi. Okay, today our guests are Tom Kwiatkowski and Mike Collins, who are both research scientists at Google, and Mike is also a professor at Columbia University. Mike and Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Today, we wanted to talk about Natural Questions, which is a data set that you both were involved in creating that was released, I guess, about a year ago now. And uh, we thought it would be nice to talk about what this data set is and what has come out of the last year of research on it. So uh, do you want to start off by telling us what is Natural Questions? Yeah, so this is a data set that we brought out. Um, the focus is on uh, question answering against uh, Wikipedia. And I guess the novelty of this, you know, there are a few novelties in the data set, but uh, the reason it's called Natural Questions is that these questions are actually things that users asked of Google Search. Um, and we think that's one novelty of the data set. And the format is that we, we take these questions, we find Wikipedia articles that we think might contain the answer, uh, and then we send the questions and those articles to annotators who will look for the answer, look for an answer in the document. And, um, we have two sort of definitions of answer. A long answer is just a, a block of text, typically a paragraph, um, that contains all of the information like required for any person to sort of very confidently infer the answer to the question. Sort of, if you showed any person this piece of text along with the question, they'd say, "Yes, I'm pretty confident that I know. I know what the answer to this question is." So that's a long answer. A short answer is just basically a span describing an entity or some entities in that text, uh, which can succinctly also answer the question. Uh, so those are our definitions. One of the most important things about data set is that there can be either no answer on the page, uh, a long answer but no short answer, or both a long answer and a short answer. And we think that's quite an important thing uh, about this data set because actually deciding whether there's enough information on the page to really infer the answer is is, is a hard thing and is a very uh, natural thing that people do when they're looking for information. So we would like our computers to be able to do the same thing. So I guess fundamentally what you have then is a search query paired with a Wikipedia page and you want to say where where in this Wikipedia page is the answer, if anywhere, which I guess is pretty related to, say, SQUAD, the Stanford Question Answering Dataset, which came out a few years before Natural Questions, um, with some key differences. But I guess in SQUAD, we still have a question, and we have a paragraph from a Wikipedia page, and we need to return an answer. So I, I guess, how, how would you describe the, the differences or um, what your motivation was, given existing resources? Why build this other one? What was, what was missing that you were trying to capture here? So there are a couple of things. Firstly, in SQUAD, Questions were written by people who'd read an underlying paragraph and then were making a question about that paragraph. And so it's obviously been an incredibly valuable resource, but we were, we were concerned about the priming effect there and also about the unnaturalness of questions where the person answering the question essentially already knows the answer to that question. We wanted to come up with a scenario where the person asking the question had a genuine information need and wanted to, wanted to know the answer to that question. And that, I think, is going to, you know, lead to critical differences in, in the difficulty of the data, <clears throat> for example, concerning the degree of lexical overlap between the passage and the questions, the degree of proximity between the passage and the, and the questions. That's, that's one key change that we had questions where the users didn't know the answers. Another key difference is really that, you know, we actually think the problem of reading an entire Wikipedia page, which can consist of many paragraphs, and deciding that there's not an answer to the page or identifying the paragraph that contains that answer is 
probably the more challenging part of the natural questions task. If you're given a paragraph and told there is an answer in it, then extracting that short answer is probably the easiest part of, of the process. Because at that point, and it's maybe more amenable to shortcuts, to be frank, statistical shortcuts. So we were, we were very interested in, in, in the problem of actually identifying which paragraph on a page uh, contained an answer. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's a good summary. And I totally agree with what you just said. What I wonder still is what made you like, what, what's your interest, your research interest in this particular problem? Like, what are your, what, what goal are you trying to solve in the end by encouraging systems that solve this task? What, what do you think people will do? Well, you know, we are interested in, in systems that are useful to users and help people get the information they're looking for. And, uh, so we do think that actually building, you know, on data, which is drawn from users who are looking for information, are more like is more likely to get us to useful systems. Um, so that is part of the motivation. Also, you know, we we are just interested in using this data to to drive the state of the art in natural language understanding. For all the reasons that Mike just mentioned, I mean, we think that this is a more challenging task than than many of the other resources out there. Um, but we also have a slightly slightly higher level <coughs> uh, view on this, which is to say that. We do think that many of the greatest advances in, in NLP over the last decades really have been driven by um, very real, you know, real world tasks. Um, so I'm talking really about machine translation and speech recognition here. And we think that, you know, while there's a lot of really exciting work at the moment on trying to find challenge tasks for specific phenomena in language understanding, um, it is also quite easy with those challenge tasks to to fixate on, I mean, the specific phenomena um, where, and that may be sort of amenable to like focused approaches that can learn quirks of some annotation schema. We sort of think that actually having naturally occurring data is less likely to to be something that is just going to fit very uh, simple statistical regularities that occur in, for instance, you know, trivia question answering or answering um, questions that have been written by an annotator who's very heavily primed. Yeah, yeah, those are good points. Uh, I I think we'll come back to this question of like targeted phenomena versus end-to-end or some natural question distribution later on in the discussion. Um, I, I wondered... As you work at Google, um, and uh, there is like a, a one-box response, like where uh, someone asks a question and Google will try to answer it directly. I, I wondered if you had this in mind as you were creating this. Like, are you trying to like encourage research that would help you help Google do better, give better search results, or is that not really a motivation here? Is it more just basic language understanding research? I I think both of the above. Really, I think we would like to encourage. I mean, we don't expect people to build you know, a system that we can use out of the box. There are all sorts of other requirements when you're trying to build a, you know, end-to-end user system. But we would love to encourage fundamental natural language understanding research, which would allow us to build better systems for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I guess to add a little bit to that, yeah, I think there are, there are two sides to it. That We definitely view question answering as a really, really useful task. It's, you know, many, many information needs to naturally pose these questions. So, you know, I'm personally very, very excited about that as an end user problem. But I'm also excited about it because I think it is an amazing way to probe models which are going to have to get into semantics and pragmatics and real world knowledge eventually. And in some ways, this data set, from our perspective, was the first step in this direction. 
but there are many things we we would like to do in the future using it in many many ways we'd like to to build on top of it and i think in getting real user questions and seeing the distribution of answers that we would get from annotators and so on it actually uncovered a lot of interesting properties of, of questions which hinge on really cool semantic and pragmatic phenomena yeah, yeah, that's great. Part of why I asked this question is I, I've I've seen Fernando Pereira talk a, a bunch about retrieval as like a why why it's a fundamental and like the perhaps the fundamental NLP task, and he's got some really compelling points, and I, I can I can totally understand um, why this might drive your research, which is which is good. I'm not trying to complain about this at all. So I think we've talked enough about like. I guess the reasoning behind uh, natural questions, I, we should probably move to talking about what it actually is, um, some more details about how you created this thing. We've already said that this is a, a query entered into a Google search box paired with a Wikipedia page. What else can you say about uh, how the data was actually collected and what it looks like? What else is there to, that, that someone should know? So it was a fairly involved process. We came up with some annotation guidelines. We kind of crowdsourced the annotations. As Tom was saying, they have to select a long answer if they can find one on the page, a short answer where appropriate. There are also Boolean questions, which are yes-no questions, which maybe 1% of the original data set, but then we had a follow-up release the Boolean questions, which was the larger set. For development and test data, we had five-way annotations um, because we found that we thought that our evaluation would be much more robust if we started to pool annotator resources. Actually, for a portion of the data, we got 25-way annotated data. That led to some interesting results in that we were curious about getting upper bounds or estimates of upper bounds of, of performance on the task. And one thing we found, which is, I mean, it's fairly obvious in hindsight if you just do the analysis, is that just taking a single user and a single random user and evaluating their accuracy against our five-way annotations uh, greatly underperforms taking an ensemble of 20 humans, where you're essentially getting closer to the Bayes optimal hypothesis, which would do something optimal under the conditional distribution of answers given the input. And so, yeah, we kept computed super annotator uh, upper bounds, uh, which we view as the, the, the correct upper bound for the task. In the paper, we also did some expert evaluations of quality. I think we found around 90% of the answers we thought were good. One interesting offshoot of that was <clears throat> there are a good number of questions where the answers are essentially correct, but reasonable people could quibble about the correctness of an answer. And I think that actually, for future research, might be a particularly interesting topic in that there are nuances, there are conditions under which an answer is correct. It's natural for a human to say, well, if by this you meant that, then this is the answer. If by this by you meant that, this is the answer. All kinds of pragmatic effects are coming in here where you have to sort of make a best guess as to what uh, a user is, is referring to in a question. Do you have any annotations of that kind of stuff? We have experts of evaluations where we categorize answers as either being wrong, unequivocally correct, or correct but debatable. And by debatable, we literally meant the four of us so-called experts could sit around and have a lively discussion for, for a few minutes about whether something was correct or not. You know, if the question is, who was the first person to see the Earth from space? And there's a document saying uh, Yuri Gagarin was the first person in space. Some of the experts, basically Mike, uh, had an issue with this because he didn't know if Vostok 1 had a window, which is a very, it's a reasonable quibble once you raise it, right? But um, that's, so that is something where we'd say, yeah, it's probably correct. Most people would quite like to see this answer, but actually there is, there is a reasonable doubt. You know, maybe if we really wanted to nail this down, you would want to go and sort of see a 
photo of the Vostok spacecraft. Or to go deeper, is space and outer space, are they the same thing? <laughs> you know, uh, the, Seriously, this is the kind of thing that comes up all the time in these questions. I mentioned this to Fernando, and he started talking about parabolic flights, I think, the early days of sort of uh, exploration and, you know, how high do you have to get up, get up to be in space? So. Was there anything surprising about uh, when you did the analysis um, and looking at, uh, you know, precision, to what extent people are consistent? The thing that really surprised me was working out that there was this category of correct with the data things, right? So, you know, when we were collecting the data, we did what people will often do is we, you know, got some crowdsourcers, we looked at their annotations, we got everyone to label the same things, and we did some annota- inter-annotative agreement. And, you know, the numbers didn't look great, and we were actually we were actually hiring these people, so we sort of gave them more training materials, and we gave them more feedback, and the numbers looked better, but they still didn't look great. And, you know, we would just keep on looking at these inter-annotative agreements, and the numbers just, we were looking at the stuff coming back from them, and it looked great, but the inter-annotative agreement was pretty low. So that was when we all just sat down. We said, okay, we have to go through these things. And we realized straight away, you know, after a long meeting where we were actually going through examples that fundamentally, you know, Mike and I would argue for 20 minutes about one example and just disagree, right? (laughs) Um, And, you know, we like to think of ourselves as reasonable people. So at some point we realized that there is this category of things where there is, there there are just multiple interpretations. So that was very surprising. the other thing that we observed that that sort of might mention this super annotator number, and I really do think that's an important thing that we came up with in this paper, is, you know, it's often in, in these tasks, we often talk about human performance, and, you know, then sometimes the computers get superhuman performance. And that can lead to, you know, all sorts of uh, breathless news articles and things. Um, and people ask me, you know, you, you really think your computer should be superhuman understanding language? And that's not even remotely what we are talking about, right? The computer can be superhuman at this task and should be because reading an entire Wikipedia article is hard and it's kind of boring sometimes, I mean, depending on whether you care about the topic. So humans get bored, right? They get bored and they have to have it's often quite low recall because they just give up. They say, I don't think the answer's on this page. Uh, but our computers shouldn't get bored, right? So that's the other thing we sort of observed. We said, okay, well... We got to a point, as Mike said, where we were looking at the things that people were giving, sending back to us, the annotators sending back, and we said, we said, well, 90% of these look really good to us. But their recall numbers were way lower because people would often give up. So that's the, you were asking about precision, you know, anything we saw in this data, that's the thing we saw is like, it's it's fairly easy to get very high precision from annotators, but um, but recall, maybe not. You sort of have to let them, them punt sometimes. And in that case, you have to get multiple annotations, certainly for a vowel. So can you tell us more about how you decided if a particular query was a question that should go into the data? Just a set of heuristics, really, which were looking for WH questions. I think that was one of the main ones, right? There was a lens, there was a lens cutoff. We want them things to be interesting. And one of the easiest ways we got that was to just say it should have at least eight words. Things with WH question, uh, start with a WH word, like what, where, when, these sorts of things. Um, Things that had multiple mentions. So, you know, if a query, sometimes we get very long queries coming into Google, which are just like word salad. But often if they have multiple entities named in them, they'll be quite structured. These heuristics are uh, listed in the paper and actually could be replicated by anyone externally. They're very simple heuristics, actually. And the reason we chose 
them to be as simple as so that anyone could replicate them externally. Of course, you don't have access to a huge number of Google search queries, but we don't want to. We didn't want to be reliant on any sort of you know funky question classifier that no one else could build. And the heuristics were designed to be high recalls because the annotators could actually mark things as not a valid as being not a valid question. And so I think the paper has some analysis where post hoc we looked and, and tried to see if, if there were questions we missed and we, we got most of them. Yeah, I remember that. It, in your paper, there's like one example of a why question, but when you have a random sample later in the paper with a bunch of examples, there are basically no questions like that. I, I ask about this because it's it, asking why something happened is very different from asking like a factoid kind of question. And I wonder if you know like what percentage of the data has this like requires a longer answer or this like why kind of explanation. So I can't say specifically why. What we can say is, you know, of the data, you know, as, as we both mentioned, uh, many of the questions don't have an answer. So there's, you know, a somewhat thing over 300,000 examples, I believe. About half of those have a long answer. And then about 35% of the full data has a short answer. So 15% of all the data has a long answer, but no short answer. So, you know, someone has gone to the work and said, okay, the information's here, but it can't be, you know, succinctly answered with a, a short piece of text. So some of those will be why questions. I, they're certainly not all why questions. Does that number include yes, no questions? Or do yes, no questions have short answers? That does not include yes, no questions. Actually, in the original data set, the yes, no questions were only about 1% of the data. Okay. Uh, there was a follow-up piece of work called uh, the Boolean questions where we sampled those. I imagine it's a lot harder to get agreement on the long, uh, the long answers. Have you seen uh, that multiple cor- uh, long answers tend to be unequivocally correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we tell people to take the first one on the page, but the answer is yes. You know, sometimes the same information is just repeated multiple places on the page. Um, so it's not always the case, you know, when there are multiple short answers, uh, sorry, multiple long answers that this is like an ambiguous question and there's opinion. Sometimes they are just repeating the same information. Having said that, we do ask people to take the first one on the page. They're pretty good at it. In the paper, again, we have some analysis of actually how many of the examples will have multiple long answers and it's relatively few and it's very rarely more than two. Got it. Yeah, I imagine it's a little hard to like, so it's easier to say we want the first answer, but it's harder to say when to stop because you could take only the first two sentences or you could take the entire paragraph because it's often quite related. Oh no, sorry. So the long answer is actually an HTML bounding box. So the annotation tool that we gave to people only let them click on like the full paragraph. Yeah, that's a a good way to get higher agreement because I can imagine lots of variation if you let them select arbitrary spans. And that is a thing that we saw a bit more in the short answers, right? And and, and intranetary agreement goes down a bit on on the short answers. Fair enough. Um, I think my my last question on like trying to understand what's in this data. I have a way of thinking about these reading comprehension data sets of, of, of like what what kind of phenomenon or linguistic phenomenon they're targeting. So I, I think of a question as squad-like as basically you need to find a paraphrase of the question in the paragraph and then extract an argument. And that's basically it. Then there are other data sets like drop where like you have to do something much more complex to answer a question. 
I wonder what percentage of the natural natural questions do you imagine? And you might not know the answer to this, but like what how how often is it just like simple paraphrase finding and argument extraction like squad? Do you know? You know, one thing to note is that you know the input format is very different and the task is very different. So so natural questions there are a few decisions that the system has to make. It first has to decide, you know, is this question answerable and is there an answer on this page? And if so, which is the paragraph? Uh, once it's decided that, you know, then it has decided is there a short answer here? And then, you know, once it's made those decisions and said, okay, I think there's a short answer here, that's, as it were, when the model actually has to extract the short answers. So it certainly is the case that if we train models, if we say, okay, we're going to throw away all the data that doesn't have an answer, which is half the data, right? Um, and deciding whether or not to answer is, I still believe, actually really one of the hardest tasks for our current systems because they they love to guess. They love they love to do word matching and they think, oh, there's some good paraphrases here. Let's just guess at it. Right. Um, so deciding whether to answer is sort of the hardest thing. We, you know, the systems also still have some way to go in terms of finding the paragraph. Once you get down to something where you know there's a paragraph uh, that contains a short answer, extracting the answer is definitely a much easier task. But again, because the questions are not sort of written by annotators, have been primed by the paragraph, the even if it is just paraphrase finding, it's it's often much harder than the stuff you see in Squad, which is honestly the you know very loosely paraphrasing. Right, right. Yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm not I'm not trying to like trivialize natural questions and like make it more like Squad. I'm just trying to understand what what you need to do to answer the questions, and definitely finding the answer is different. I or sorry, finding whether the whether the question is answerable. I know, like there's there's work Doctor QA and Document QA, a bunch of systems that um, will like take a whole document, a whole Wikipedia page. Uh, they did this with Squad, in fact, where like you, you take a question, you try to find which paragraph, if any, has the answer, uh, and then answer it that way. I guess to try to answer my original question, you could imagine taking a system that was trained on Squad and evaluating it without any other training on natural questions, given the original paragraph, like it, assuming. For all the questions where there is a long answer, see if you can recover the short answer. And then that would get at my question at least a little bit. Again, we think that identifying the short answer once you know the paragraph contains an answer, we'd, we think that's probably not the most interesting part of the task. Okay. Also, to answer your question, I, that's a very good suggestion, Matt. I have, we have not ever done that. I don't know why we've never done that. I would suspect that it would do pretty badly. I'm gonna, you know, throw my hat into the ring and say I think that would do pretty badly. I think I do know I do know that people have used Squad as extra training data to get a little gain on natural questions, um, which is nice. Uh, but I think just training on Squad, I would I would guess that it would not do very well. Uh, it, especially like the earlier models that were just trained on Squad and with no pre-training, because they're going to be very very heavily aff- affected or influenced by the the very trivial lexical overlap in a lot of the squad questions, but something that's like that has Roberta and then was fine-tuned on squad to do the argument extraction, maybe it would be a little more but a little more robust to paraphrase. But yeah, well, well, I you know encourage you to try it. Maybe we will. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah, and I I guess I'm again my my whole point here is just trying to understand like what do you need to answer these questions? And to to Mike's point. It sounds like at least Mike thinks that um, the questions themselves, once you know the long answer, are relatively simple argument extraction questions. That if if you think that task is easy, that's probably what you mean. 
Because I, I can think of plenty of questions for like drop questions, for example, where given a paragraph and a question, it's not at all trivial. I, it's not a simple argument extraction. I, I wouldn't expect a system to just do really well given the given the the paragraph itself. Well, remember that for for maybe a quarter of our cases, they don't even pick a short answer because it's not possible. So, the, so those are probably the cases where something more is needed. But the yeah, for three quarters of the cases where they pick a long answer, there is a short answer, and those are probably more extractive entity style answers for sure. Great. So it's been a year since Natural Questions was released. And what has happened since? Do you want to tell us how things have progressed, how happy you are with the progress? What what do you think? And I guess I'm specifically asking about like modeling stuff on this data. Yeah, you know, there's been some activity on the leaderboard. The numbers have gone up quite significantly. There's still a bit of a gap to uh, what we think is is possible. Many of the things that have improved uh, numbers have been, you know, bigger and better pre-training. It was 2019 after all, um, and uh, there have been a but there have been a few sort of different um, dataset specific things. In particular, there was some quite nice work from IBM last year, which. Um, sort of trivialized itself by calling itself uh, frustratingly easy natural question answering. Um, but what, you know, what they did in that paper was essentially they're using these large pre-trained language models as, as with everyone else, but have a number of quite nice um, modifications where they, they have some architectural modifications, but also have really worked out how to represent a document, right? So one of the issues that we have with our current huge pre-trained language models is you can't actually fit an entire document into whichever your accelerators you want to use. And you have to sort of slice it up in some sort of way uh, and deal with those slices, uh, just from those slices afterwards. So that has been uh, one of the biggest things that has come out in the last year is saying, well, how can we represent an entire document by chopping it up into pieces and then aggregating predictions? That's one thing. Um, another thing that has been quite important for this task, uh, and I think people are still working on it, is working out the sort of um, how to calibrate the model to work out whether or not to answer. Um, and so I think there's been some nice gains coming from basically better ways of doing negative sampling. You know, one of the ways to calibrate is, you know, how many like answerable things do you show and how many unanswerable things do you show, right? Where there's been some stuff there. That's sort of modeling side. Uh, there have also been some... some um, follow-up sort of data set stuff. So uh, we mentioned that there's a follow-up focus uh, data set focusing on the yes-no questions. Um, and the interesting thing there is that that actually is much more like a natural language inference task, right? Uh, because someone's asking, you know, someone basically says a state, says a statement and says, is it true that? And there's a statement. And and so it basically is becomes a sort of a entailment prediction task. I'm sure I'm missing <laughs> things. Mike, do you do you have other things? Not that I can think of. I, I think, you know, I think to flip that question ar- around, I think I could talk a little bit about what I think could be some really exciting directions in the future. Um, and I think in, in some sense, the, the neural, say, transformer based models work quite well on this task, although they're not up to human performance yet. But there's the obvious criticism, the black boxes that we don't understand, and they are very likely picking up on a lot of spurious correlations or statistical shortcuts to, to getting the correct answer. So somehow getting a better handle on that problem. How do we build models where we can interpret what they're doing and where they are doing something that is closer to the causal structure of what's really going on in language? 
and how do they they prove that they're really doing that? How 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 can we really build models that are robust and interpretable and understandable? I think that that is going to be a huge huge problem going forward. I I definitely agree. Yeah, it is sort of our uh, our belief, like having looked at predictions, that the current models are pretty good at sort of identifying things that look like pretty valid answers. You know, really could be valid answers, and then then guessing, right? The question will be something like, you know, who played Batman in Dark Knight Rises? And they'll find the page will talk about someone playing Batman, right? And the model will just think, okay, that's enough. That's enough. Like, this is this is the this is the actor's name, um, and it will just choose to ignore half the question, right? So uh, our current models just love to do that sort of, um, and which is funny because it's kind of, in some ways, the opposite of what people do, where they're you know, much less good at recall. <laughs> they get bored reading, trawling through an article, but um, are quite good at precision, actually understanding. Okay, like no, this is the wrong, the wrong thing that's been talked about here. But I, I guess if you're assuming a decent retrieval system that probably gives you the right uh, uh, assume that the question is answerable given the right paragraph on the web and i can retrieve probably the right paragraph for you i guess you can understand why current systems do that because you are pairing them with a plausible wikipedia document right it's a plausible one it's not always the correct one and also do remember that our definition of correctness is not just that it has to be the right answer right it's that the paragraph has to contain all of the information required for anyone who maybe doesn't even know about this topic to fully agree that this is the right answer, right? I see. So, sure, I mean, if, if the, par- the paragraph might, might even be talking about the right actor, but it might not be talking, it might not even mention the movie, right? So, you know, do we know that that's the right answer? And under our definition of correctness, that's not a good answer. Did you, did you evaluate that? Like, how often does that happen? I'm imagining, like it, it, in that in that exact case, would would the long answer actually be annotated as the paragraph that just says Batman and not Dark Knight? Sorry, uh, the, so the long answer would not be given if it doesn't have all of the information required, right? Under our definition. So. Yeah, un, under your definition, right? I'm just wondering about the actual annotators, how they applied that definition, because it seems hard to get people to agree there. Like, I, I can imagine myself as an annotator selecting that paragraph. I mean, that's our definition. And as Mike said earlier, under that definition, we got 90% blackism, according to ourselves. And we are pretty strict. Like, that 10% had some, you know, had some correct answers in it, like, what, by which I mean the answer, you know, most people would have been happy with it. But under our definition, yes, 90% of it is correct. Um, we, you know, we were lucky to have a pool of dedicated annotators who we actually managed to work with over that over an amount of time to train them really to to get used to this definition great so uh, mike you mentioned like what kind of research you would like to see and i agree but uh, i would ask a more specific question what what kind of research would help us actually solve natural questions maybe to pose this another way what what's missing what's not being solved and what is needed to solve it that's a great question i mean i feel that to really solve these kind of tasks we might, might need models that really need to keep track, track of this discourse structure, the set of entities and, and references in a domain, um, and the set of propositions in the domain, and how they're linked to each other. Uh, maybe natural questions is solvable without going all the way to that, but if that's the case, there are going to be tasks that build on top of data like natural questions, like conversational systems and so on, where we can push models t- towards having to do that. Because having models which aren't really keeping track of 
entities and discourse and and, and the propositions outlined in, in, in discourse seems problematic to me. I don't think these, these systems are really understanding language. I, I definitely agree with you on that point. I wonder, though, about natural questions, because you're assuming that I have a single paragraph that has all of the information needed to answer the question. And so doesn't that assume that I'm not going to have discourse that connects it to previous parts of the document? Um, yeah, but even the discourse effects within single paragraphs can be fairly significant, right? Uh, co-reference, bridging, implied arguments everywhere. If you, if you and what one, one interesting experiment is just, just take a sentence out of context in Wikipedia and see if it makes any sense, see if, see if it's interpretable. Um, and you'll, you'll see that there are all kinds of referential effects and implied arguments and, uh, and other things in there. Yeah, great. I guess my my last line of questioning here, um, you you mentioned in your paper about like what, and we, we talked about this earlier. So like, what is a benchmark, a good benchmark for a natural language understanding? And if if we solve natural questions, do we understand language? It's it's a good question. We were trying to come up with a good benchmark for question answering, and and I will say that I think it will push research in semantics and pragmatics. But it certainly wasn't meant to be the final story on uh, testing natural and, language understanding. For me, the the test of real natural understanding is the the Turing test, right? It's a conversation. If it, once a system can have a conversation with me and really interact with me the way a human would, then I think it would fully understand language. But we may have to build all kinds of tasks on the way to that. And, you know, question answering is one of them, I guess. I guess you you say question answering like, it sounds like what you mean when you say question answering is is open domain, give me a search bar and have me answer a question. There, may, there are going to be very many variants. Yeah, like this is just one variant. And there are many, all of which are interesting, which are different. It's actually, it's yeah, I think it's a mistake to lump them all into the same category. That's part of the problem. Machine translation, speech recognition are fairly well defined. You know, a task which are you, you say it, it's clear what you mean. Question answering actually lumps in a lot of somewhat related but also rather different tasks. Yeah, I guess an, an alternative approach, one that um, I am pushing in my research agenda quite a bit, so I am a little bit biased here, but is you can use questions to probe whatever you want, and you're using it to probe. I, actually, you're not using it to probe much. Like, you're not using it as a probe. I think it's a totally different approach, and I and I like th- I like this approach, and I think it's good to distinguish between them. They're both useful. Where I'm trying to say, does the machine understand, say, coreference? For instance, you talked about entities and stuff, and like, can I design questions that that really really probe this? Uh, whereas you're saying, I have people asking questions. Can I answer them? And I I wonder what your thoughts are on like, what's the I, it's, I, I don't know that I would say either way is better, but do, do you have any thoughts on like which one of these is like possibly more fruitful in pushing natural language understanding research? I think the question answering uh, like uh, definition in, in, uh, in natural questions is actually trying to assess, you know, the question answering as a task that humans ask that like a, an actual information need. And it's, it is an important task in its own right. Um, I think what you're doing, Matt, is also important for helping us as natural language researchers, you know, address these uh, various linguistic questions that we care about, but we don't necessarily know how to how to how to define a task around. So, defining it like framing it as a question answering problem makes it easier for us to get annotations and reuse some of the 
like models that we know already work well for question answering. So it feels like they're very orthogonal. Yeah. Here, I'll, I'll give, I'll give a, a better posing of, of what I was trying to say, which might help clarify some things. Um, it's like, so natural questions is great. My, my, the question that started this was like, if we've solved natural questions, have we solved language understanding? And I guess the thing that I think about is like, what, what would a linguist want to see in order to be convinced that the machine understands language given some natural questions result? Like how, what would have to change about natural questions in order to, to really be convincing in, in this regard? Yeah. in that question, to repeat sort of what Mike said, I don't, I don't think there's any results on natural questions that would make me feel that the machine understood language. And I'm not sure that we need a linguist. I think we just need someone who speaks the language. And as Mike said, I think the task is getting them to speak to the, I mean, get the computer to have this conversation, for instance. We're very far from that. You know, I think it also is very useful to have linguists, you know, help us understand ways of probing our models and understand ways of sort of working out, you know, what do they and do they not capture? And, you know, Mike also talked about many of the, uh, phenomena that we think will be very important for natural questions. Uh, I think in parallel, it would be amazingly good to have linguists help us understand, you know, our, how to what extent the models are actually capturing these phenomena. I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit wary of probing tasks where one also trains on the same probes, same sorts of probes that are being used to look into the models, right? Because my only concern is that it's so hard to get annotators to do this in a very diverse way, these probes in a very diverse way. So I sometimes do worry that when we ask you know, annotators to write down probes for specific phenomena, they're going to fall into uh, the habit of just using the same pattern over and over again. And in the second that we train on those things, our models have such high capacity, they can like memorize those patterns in a second. So that is something where I'm a little bit more skeptical, but in general, I think linguistic probing tasks are great. I think I, I strongly encourage people to work on them in, you know, in parallel to working on other sort of more general tasks like uh, natural questions. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you say about um, picking up on biases in the training data. Sounds like we're basically in agreement on this point. But, but coming back to what, might be convincing in terms of whether the, the machine can really understand language. If we come back to that Yuri Gagarin example, you know, uh, who was the first person to see Earth from space? You know, a system which came back to you and said, well, if by space you mean outer space, then this guy went up in this thing and you can look at it, you can see there's a window there. And oh, actually, I found this quote where he says that, actually, there is some quote on the web where he says how amazing it was to see the Earth. You know, something something was actually conversational, but then it would say, on the other hand, it's also arguable that this is a notion of space, and in that case, parabolic flights might have made it. You know, that would that would be you know, that seems like very very far off, but that would be a, a, an amazing uh, demonstration of real natural language understanding, right? So uh, at the moment, I think we're still at the early stages where we're just sort of giving back snippets or paragraphs, but I hope we can start building towards these these more sort of sci-fi scenarios. Yeah. Great, great answer. Um, okay, I, I lied. One more, one more question. Is there anything that you would have done differently if you could go back and build natural questions again? I think this is not that well understood, but I, I, I do wonder if there's some way we could have stratif- uh, upsampled or downsampled certain portions or stratified samples. In that you, there are quite a lot of questions about entertainment or like who played this role in this movie, and it, it uh, you know, we we probably could have annotated less of that and more interesting stuff. Um, 
you know, active learning is one way of doing that, but it's very dependent on the model you're using. And beyond that, I don't actually know of a good, particularly good way of getting a theoretical or formal handle on how to do that well. Yeah, I think there are plenty of interesting questions there. So you, we wanted to follow the input distribution, which I think was the sort of default decision. It was an okay decision, but I think uh, exploring other alternatives would have been interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be good. It's very hard to do... It would be also very hard to do that without destroying the falling again into these biases, though. Um, and and so you know, since you mentioned entertainment questions, I mean, some of the ones, some of the entertainment questions are the ones that, to me personally, are the most boring. But uh, from a linguistic perspective, are, can be fascinating because when people ask about the plot of certain soap operas, soap operas that have been running for twenty years. Um, the, the, I mean, the discourse structure is insane. <laughs> it's like, you know, everyone's been in a relationship with everyone else. And the question is, you know, which time is being asked about? <laughs> so, um, so some, some of these things, you know, maybe topically not so interesting, but actually, uh, to, to, to some of us, but can be very linguistically interesting. Other things, I mean, you know, just talk about, Mike mentioned active learning. I mean, I think another thing that maybe we're moving towards as a community, which, I think is a good thing is the idea of fast iteration on these data sets. Um, I think we sort of came out of an era in which there were like these big benchmarks that people have been working on for, you know, decades in some cases. Um, and I think that's great. And those that we got learned a lot from those things. Um, and there has been some effort to sort of build the benchmarks for the next decade. Um, and, you know, I would love it. Well, actually I wouldn't love it if people were working in natural questions in a decade. I hope we're doing much more intro, you know, I'm not saying it's not interesting right now, but I hope I hope we're sort of doing other things in a decade. Um, but this idea that, you know, maybe if we don't go all the way for active learning, but we sort of iterate with the community more quickly and say, okay, look, we're going to do something this year. Maybe it's not going to be so big. Maybe it's not going to be so, you know, well-honed, but we're going to get feedback, see what people do, and then reintegrate that feedback and think about what version two looks like. Have, have you thought about, what might come next? Like what it, what would a version two or a harder version or a next step look like? One thing that I can say is that there's been some very exciting work recently um, that uses natural questions. Also has some of us used other, other data sets. Um, the natural questions seems to be the most widely used one uh, on, on question answering where you don't have access to the document. Um, and so there's stuff from, uh, the H squared group in UW uh, and people at uh, Danji Chen in Princeton, um, include, and people also uh, at Google, and I'm, I'm sure I'm missing other people, but have been working on this open domain question answering thing where the input is just a question and you have to spit out an answer. And I find that very interesting because, you know, it, it sort of is wide open as to how you do that, mate. But some of these approaches are retrieval based, but also there have been more recent stuff, um, including. Um, from Google, so some approaches which just a generation model. You know, you just read the question and generate the answer. That's uh, the T5 model um, from Google in Google Brain. Um, and so there's there's a whole load of stuff that one can do there. And I think that is an exciting actually next step. Um, and I think it's probably a lot less amenable to some of the sort of statistical regularities that we sort of see uh, the models latching onto in the reading comprehension task. Right. Great. This has been a really fun conversation. Um, any final thoughts or things you really wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Nothing I can really think of. I think we covered a lot of ground. Great. This is fun. I'm looking forward to the next year. Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for coming on.
Thank you so much for having us. Thanks.